Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health. We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause. That's why we created Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves. So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey, Clara, how are you? Good. How's your week been, Grace? Yeah, it's been all right. I tried to grow a veggie patch this week and I'm failing at growing vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like me. I do not have a green thumb at all. No, Everything I, I kill, I'm I'm really bad for plants. I'm just like the worst thing that you can touch them. Yeah, no, everything, it has potential and then a few weeks in it just starts drooping and I just give up. Maybe I'm overwatering it. <laughs> it could be. I, mm. I, yeah, I go between overwatering and severely underwatering. <laughs> just I'm not a green thumb. I've tried everything and I love Same. houseplants, like love houseplants. I was at one point when I was single before meeting John, I think I was that crazy houseplant lady. Really? Yeah, because I lived in an apartment. I wasn't allowed a pet, <laughs> so I went with houseplants. Uh, that's, that's fair. No, I just, um, where I live, sometimes you can't get, there's no farmer's markets, which I love, and sometimes you can't get fresh produce. So I was like, I'm just going to grow it. And I spent hundreds of dollars on all the equipment and just hasn't been working for me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't what give a, up. I, I'm sure you. there's people out there that can give you some tips. Teach yes. Grace, everybody, reach out, teach Grace how to plant a veggie patch. And actually yep. me as well because that's my next mission. Um, we want to grow some veggies down at Hawkesbury as well. So Please slide into our DMs. <laughs> And teach us how to grow a veggie patch. Yeah. How's your week been? Yeah, good. Um, definitely I was, I've been dealing with a sleep regression with Kingsley. So Kingsley's now seven months old and she's definitely going through a sleep regression. So I'm now just quite sleep deprived. So I'm spending my week <laughs> delving into the sleep episodes at the moment that are in the in the portal for the new challenge. And the new oh that's a good idea yeah yeah and I've been trying to listen to them and try to work out how I can get some better sleep and how to get her back into a sleep routine it's sort of when you start having a baby you realize they just go through phases and they change they're constantly changing and every time before they have a big development there's this theory that they have a bad sleep period so I'm oh, okay. definitely in the throes of that unfortunately she was a baby that was sleeping very well for a very long time so now this has completely thrown me for a loop because I'm not used to the bad sleep pattern. So today's guest is Amanda Crossley and she is a bowel cancer survivor so she is going through her bowel cancer journey at the moment. She's doing her last rounds of chemotherapy and then her final testing so she's still very much in the throes of bowel cancer and it's a really interesting and raw interview. I am really appreciative to people like Amanda coming on and taking the time to talk to you all and talk to me about Bowel Cancer Australia. I've had a very good girlfriend of mine go through bowel cancer. She was diagnosed at just 35. She had two young girls One was, you know, just one and a half at the time that she was being diagnosed. She was fit. She was healthy. She was a farmer. She was, you know, very active outdoor lifestyle. And it was just something that we didn't expect to happen. It was something that we wouldn't have even thought to investigate. So 
I believe, and I don't know if she ever put two and two together, but I believe she went to the doctor at, you know, six months before her diagnosis and said she was having some issues and they put it down to extreme food poisoning. I remember her telling me about that once she told me about being rushed to the hospital. So what ended up happening was she had extreme bloating. She got rushed to the hospital. They took her straight in for an operation. So it was obviously severe enough that they thought that um, there was a blockage in the bowel and she wasn't able to pass anything. So they took her straight in. And at the time, that's when they found a tumour blocking her bowel. She sent um, me a message letting me know what was going on. And at that time, she again, she still didn't know she had bowel cancer. She just knew that there was a blockage in the bowel and they were doing the tests on it. Um, I remember her telling me that she'd been to the doctor and her symptoms of going to the doctor and she was told that she had extreme food poisoning. Just done the tests then then maybe she wouldn't have been diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer. Um, it wouldn't have spread and, you know, she might have had a better outcome. So today's episode with Amanda is really, really interesting. She talks about going and getting some testing done and the barriers that she faced in getting the testing done. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us. Um so I had a read of your story. Take us back to when you were, you know, first diagnosed. So you're a first-time mum, you've just had a baby. What were you starting to experience and feel? Um, second-time mum, sorry. Oh, second-time mum, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I started getting um, the symptoms through my um, through the pregnancy and I knew they weren't right because it was my second time and I didn't mm. experience anything like that with my first Um yeah, so, yeah, just a lot of pain. Um, and obviously the pain just it didn't go away after the pregnancy. It just kept getting worse. Um, and so, yeah, so it just had to just keep going to the doctors and I kept asking for um, for answers and I kept getting fobbed off, basically, told it was normal, knew it wasn't normal. Um, and then finally I had to present all the information and say, look, I tick every single box for bowel cancer. Like I, I have a strong family history. I really I think this is what I've got. Like I said, I think I've got bowel cancer. Still kind of got an air of don't think you do, but surely here's a few tests. And then we did the test and, yeah, we've, I've got bowel cancer like I thought. So Wow. So what were, you said you had pain, but what were the symptoms that made you think that it was bowel cancer? Um, so pretty, my pretty much, it was pretty textbook really, um, which makes me probably the most angry. Um, the abdominal cramping, um, change in bowel habits, um, never feeling full, uh, empty when I was going to the toilet, the narrow stools, blood in the stools, mucus stools. Like I ticked every single box for bowel cancer and, it, yeah, still kind of didn't, wasn't taken seriously for it. So, yeah. And how many months were you looking for an answer? Like how many? So the pain started when I was around 20, mo- uh, 20, 20 weeks pregnant, so, you know, about halfway through my pregnancy, and it wasn't until Bob was um, nearly three months old that I got an answer. So it wow. was, yeah, about wow. eight months or so. It was a long time. And I I understand that um, a lot of the pregnancy symptoms are very similar to the bowel cancer one. So I, I get that it was a hard diagnosis, but I have a really strong family history as well. Like my mum and my mm. aunt both have bowel cancer at young ages, 35 and, um, yeah, 35 for my aunt and 40 for my mum. And it just, 
it just makes me so mad that like I wasn't taken seriously. <laughs> like you at least knew where to look because you did have that family history where there would be a lot of people that wouldn't have that family history that don't know where to look, wouldn't even think of it um, no. at such a young age. How young were you when you were diagnosed? Um, so 32. So 32. So very yeah. young. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, I mean, the blood in the stool and the mucus is clear indicators that something is definitely wrong. Yeah. But the rest of it, the abdominal pain, the, you know, all of that kind of stuff, that goes, I guess, as you said, hand in hand with pregnancy. It can go hand in hand with a few other um, issues that women face. Yeah. So what were you, what were you being told by doctors? That it was normal. <laughs> that it was normal pregnancy and postpartum um, pain. So I was sent off with um, like hemorrhoid cream. I was sent off with um, Movicol and stool softeners, told to take iron tablets because my iron mm -hmm. was low. Um, pretty much all just Band-Aid fixes to try and um, fix, my, like, fix my pain and my issues. Um, and you're right. So... Um, you know, these like other women might not know to look for these signs and they might have taken a lot longer to get answers because because they are very similar to pregnancy. You do get obviously, hemorrhoids are a common thing in pregnancy mm. and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's it's just frustrating <laughs> because you just want to be taken a bit more seriously, especially like when you're in so much pain. Like you can get all mm. those symptoms that come with pregnancy, but when you're in so much pain, like I stopped breastfeeding because I just couldn't handle being touched all the time because I was just in agony. Like it just, I was so like overstimulated and I just, it just was, is too much. It just pushed mm. me over the edge to have someone attached to me while I was just in agony all the time. So, you know, like you shouldn't be in pain like that. Like it's no. a pain I've never experienced before. It was horrible. You've got a young child, three months old. You've got another child in the house. Once you get your diagnosis, What's you know what plan of action did you start going into? What then happens? Um, yeah, so we um, so we did the CT scan, which picked up the mass in my bowel um, immediately. So things moved really fast after that. Um, like two days later, I saw a, a specialist. Um, we did a, a colonoscopy like a, a week later. They couldn't get past the um, the tumor, so that's how big it was. Like they couldn't yeah. see past it. That's yeah. Um, so yeah, they did that. Um, a month after diagnosis, I was booked for, um, a hemicolectomy. So they took out half of my bowel. Um, so they did that. Um, then they, t uh, they, it looked like they had spread to my liver, um, on mm. scans and by all accounts, we all thought that that's what it was. There was a spot on my liver. It made sense that it had gone to my liver. Um, so we did a liver uh, resection, took that out and thankfully it wasn't. So that brought my grading from a stage four to a stage three. For those who don't know, what's the difference between a stage four and a stage three? Um, so stage three is um, usually kind of just gone to the lymph nodes. Stage four, it has spread to other organs. So how's chemotherapy been? Rough, really rough. It's hard. It's really hard, especially with two young kids. It's um, mm. the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> yeah it's draining it's um obviously i've put my whole life on hold for this everything mm. revolves around chemo i you know i'm not back at work after maternity leave um 
I, can, I have to be careful with the kids. Like there's certain things that I um, like if I I can't share food or water or anything with that with, with them. Um, I can't. I have to be careful. Like if there's any bodily fluids, um, I can't let them you know, near any of that. I'm tired all the time, so I can't mm. play with them the way that I want to play with them. Um, there's things that I have cancelled, like playdates or um, events, because I'm too scared of either them getting sick and then passing it on to me, or me getting sick. Mm. Oh, true. Um, yeah, it's it's not how I really wanted to spend these years with my kids, basically. And we spoke to a dietitian um, who suggested meal plans. Were you put straight onto a meal, like a not a meal plan, but a diet? of what you could and couldn't eat during this period? No. So Really? Um, no, yeah. So um, immediately after, um, so my, uh, just, to, just to stay, um, my backstory. So before I was diagnosed, mm. I was two um, subjects off completing my nutritional medicine <laughs> bachelor's degree. So I, thankfully I have a background of this um, nature. So I, I have an understanding. A lot of people mm. obviously don't. So yeah. um, it made me really mad, especially when I left um, after my bowel surgery. I just had half of my bowel removed and mm. I said to them in the hospital, um, like, what, what can I eat now? Like, what's, mm. what's, where do I go from here? Because obviously it's going to be a big change. Um, and they said, oh, no, it's fine. You know, give it a week or so and you can just go back to eating normally. And I was like, no, like that's what? <laughs> you can't be telling people this. This is crazy. So um Obviously, it is out of my expertise, and I don't really know a lot of this. Mm. You know, I'm still studying myself. So I did um, seek the help from a naturopath, um, naturopath nutritionist, um, to get some guidance because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do anything wrong. I didn't want to set back my healing. I don't want to, um, you know, I just wanted to get as healthy as I could before we started chemo and also mm. through chemo. And I, you know, I I know diet's going to help me with that, so that's why I did that. But no, there's no, um, and also Bowel Cancer Australia. Um, I reached out to Bowel yeah. Cancer Australia. They've got some amazing nutritionists um, and they really supported me, like amazing advice um, through them. So I can highly recommend um, Bowel Cancer Australia nutritionists as well. They were very helpful. Um, but, yeah, in terms of, like, health care, no, I didn't get any any help at all and I had to seek the help for it. So if you don't have a background with that and you don't really know any better, then you're just going to keep continuing to eat the way that you are. It's like your body's been through a huge change. It's not going to handle yeah. all the same foods. You mentioned your mum and your auntie had bowel cancer. Did they, when you were growing up, did they kind of make you aware of their condition and like say, hey, you might need to like look out for these symptoms or maybe get yourself tested growing up? um no one knew i guess that they had lynch syndrome when i was younger my mum uh my mum's from a really big family of like 13 <laughs> so oh wow yeah, yeah, yeah so there's um there's a lot of that and um it's quite a you know not everyone talks to each other as you can imagine siblings so. yeah yeah we get it <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> so i don't have a lot to do with, with my aunt i kind of just always knew that she had um bowel cancer and I know there's a lot of different other cancers in the family, which when I piece it together now, I know that that's all kind of Lynch related, which is what I've got. Um, but my mum, I don't think she mum was also given a lot of education about it. She wasn't tested for Lynch. She's still um, like, I'm the one that has told her she needs to get tested for Lynch. Um, and this was about, you know, oh, 
15, 10, 15 years ago. So I guess um, it's all kind of emerging. Maybe they didn't know about it then either. Mm. Um, but because of her history, I, I am, um, I was kind of more vigilant about it myself. I should have probably pushed for testing earlier, um, but obviously life, right? Like, yeah, it's just, and you're pregnant, toddler, like working, like there's just so much going yeah. on. It's kind of, you know, th- yeah. and you think I'm young, that's fine. I'll get on top of it. Or, you know, mm. it'll happen. Yeah. So what is Lynch? You keep on mentioning Lynch. Yeah. What is yeah, Lynch? Sorry. So Lynch syndrome. Um, so it's a, it's a genetic um, mismatch basically. So um, it's inherited usually for the most mm. part um, comes um there's four different strains of it. Um, the strain that I have is called MLH1. So anyone that really has Lynch, um, any of the strains is at a high risk of um, bowel cancer. That's the the number one. Um, I think, don't quote me, but I think it's like a 47% um, compared to the general public um, chance of getting wow. um, bowel cancer at an earlier age as well. Um, other cancers are endometrial, um, ovarian. Mm. Oh, sorry, endometrial. Oh, yeah, sorry, ovarian. Um, stomach. Um, yeah, there's a whole handful. Brain, I mm. think, is one of them. Um, puts you at a, yeah, a higher risk of getting those cancers if you carry this gene this much, yeah. So did you find this from your genetic testing or was this a result from finding out you got bowel cancer it kind of all happened from the cancer so um my um colorectal surgeon he's the one that suggested it to me i guess i i ticked a lot of the boxes that made it flag for him my family history Mm. um my young age um and there when he did the when he did the resection and they sent it off he said that it, it came back for markers that generally do show up for um for lynch syndrome um don't ask me i don't know what the, the technical words are for them <laughs> but um so he was the one that suggested it we did that and then yeah it came back confirmed that i do have the lynch syndrome um mismatch and apparently it, it is quite common but obviously a lot of people don't know that they have it in their family mm. kind of not really looking for it um and you don't generally get tested until someone in the family has cancer or you have cancer. So you can't just walk into a genetic counselling office and say, I want to get tested. Like it doesn't oh. happen like that. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask. You know, yeah. if, you, if you have a family history of cancer, for example, is this something you would suggest people go and get tested for? I think um, so I don't I probably don't know too much about the whole um, process. So I think mm. if you have the family history, um then you can probably start like a, you know, a gen- maybe a general GP can probably um, send off a referral. I'm not too sure. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, but if like just a, a, you know, if you don't really have any family history of cancers um, and you just, you just want to check to be sure, I don't think it works like that. I don't think you can just okay. say, I just want to want to know if I carry this gene mm. as much. I think you have to have some kind of um, history for it. Yeah. Oh, because after Chris Hemsworth came out and did his genetic testing. I just assumed you could walk in and be like, hey, <laughs> tell me my roadmap. What's going on? Yeah. It would be amazing if you could do that. Yeah. It, it would be, wouldn't it? It would make life a lot easier for a lot of people. So now that, so you're going through chemo, you've had all these operations, you have two children. Has this affected any plans for, and sorry if this question's too personal, but like, for you to have another child and expand your family? Like how has that changed 
for you? A lot. So um, we kind of always knew that we wanted at least three kids. So that was kind of like that's what we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first diagnosed, um, it was very kind of not pushed per se, but very encouraged that I get a hysterectomy pretty much as soon as I finished chemo just to um, to reduce the risk of you know the endometrial and the other cancers. Um, the more that I – and at first I was like, yes, like definitely I don't want to go through this again. I never want to get mm. cancer again. Like let's just chop it all out and reduce that risk. Um, but the further on I get with um, chemo and the more that I think about it, I don't know if I'm quite ready to do that. Like we yeah. kind of really want to try for another child. But And then obviously we don't know if the chemo has affected my, um, my fertility. So mm. there's that as well. We're not really sure. Like obviously we can try, maybe I won't fall pregnant. Um, so yeah, I just for me, I feel like I'm a ticking time bomb, which sounds mm. crazy, but I just don't know. You know, like I never thought that I was going to get bowel cancer at 32. So like I just feel like when is another one going to come up? When is mm. like another cancer going to arise in my body? Like I just yeah, I just it's probably not the best way to think about it, but it's always in the back of my mind. Yeah. Did any of your doctors talk through a fertility plan apart from the hysterectomy? So yeah. Did they ever sit down with you and say, okay, you've got two children, what are your plans? Um, it was kind of everything was fairly kind of rushed, but I guess mm. we a few people, a few of the especially my oncologists, um, I've I've had two oncology doctors, um, and both of them did say to me like what what are your plans for fertility? Mm. Do you like, do you want to freeze? Um, we can try, you know, there were a few, few options that were um, shown to me, but in, in the scheme of things, I was just so desperate to start chemo. Like yeah. I just wanted to start like just killing whatever was in my body basically. So it kind of, uh, I just, I really just wanted to like get on top of that. I can imagine. Yeah, I didn't even think yeah. about other kids. Like we knew that mm. we wanted more, but I think we were just like, just get rid of the cancer. Like mm. I need to be here for the kids that I do have before I start thinking about any others. Yeah, yeah. When you're going through like chemo, when you're going through surgery, how do you stay positive? Like, how do you not get into the slumps and like the crappy mindsets? Uh, it the Sundays are hard. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Really hard. Yeah. Some days it's hard to not feel fall into the, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? Um, but I mean, why not, right? It could happen to anyone. Honestly, it's yeah. It it's just the way that the cards were drawn, basically. So and I can't change why me. So just focus on fixing what's at hand um and moving past it. Like there's no point kind of dwelling on those thoughts because it's it's pointless energy basically i can't Mm. change my diagnosis i can't change what's happened i can't change leading up to it you know i could think what did i what have i done to you know for this to happen was it something that i ate or was it something Mm. in my lifestyle or anything like that i can't change any of that so i just need to focus on getting better and yeah just yeah being positive like it's there's no point wasting energy basically that's kind of the way i see it and that goes for every area of life isn't it there's no point being negative when i go play sport when i go play touch football i'm like guys we're gonna manifest this try and we're gonna win this game and they're like oh she goes on a tangent again i'm like yeah i'm being positive we lose every game (laughs) um so in terms of your mental health through this which is i guess at the crux of what we've just been talking about 
what support were you offered? Um, what and what other kind of support are you, have you been able to access to help you through um, this? I haven't actually been offered any support, basically, for anything at all, really. Now that I think about it, um, wow. Uh, I was able to go through my GP and um, access like a care plan, um, <clears throat> but I had to seek that myself, um, and really anything any support that i wanted it's all been kind of at my own like research or looking into it myself um bowel cancer australia again um have amazing resources so i know that they've got um like uh counseling support they've got nurses they've got the nutritionists like there's mm-hmm. so much support through them which um is fantastic um and super accessible so like if i reach out to them i can talk to them within like within a day i have before so they've been really really great um, I haven't really reached out to any others. Um, mental health for me, um, I haven't, I probably, I feel like maybe I'm still kind of in the throes of it all. I probably haven't yeah. processed it as much as I should. And I think maybe after this is all done and it's, you know, I'm in that kind of like, there's like a, um, like a waiting phase after chemo mm. and my next scan, I'll, that's probably when I'll be like, wow what a year like that was that was a lot and I might probably seek um some help then but right now I feel I'm quite I'm okay I have but I have good support I have amazing friends um my partner is like a godsend could not have done this Mm. without him um you know he's my soundboard as well so he he listens to everything Hey, it's Grace here. Just want to quickly interrupt the episode to say it's time to start nourishing you. Join the eight week program and get eight weeks of easy, delicious meal plans with full shopping lists. And at $5.50 or under per serve, it couldn't be more affordable to eat healthy. Each week, we'll give you a range of meals to cook that are quick and easy to prepare with minimal waste. You don't have to be a master chef to enjoy these nutritious meals. Plus fun online workouts, mentoring from industry experts and access to our exclusive sleep school. Spots are limited. Join now. Now let's get back into the episode. It's infuriating, especially as a woman, to try and get a diagnosis because I feel like we are often um, just disregarded as, mm-hmm. you know, it, oh, it'll be this or it'll be that. Like it's mm-hmm. it, it, it's just frustrating. It really is super frustrating because you just want to be taken seriously, <laughs> honestly. Like if you're going to the doctor and you're saying I'm in pain and these are my symptoms and you've given some Mobicol and some Coloxal, like it's just so infuriating. Like as soon as I, as soon as I gave me these things, I was like, this is not the problem. I know this is not the problem. Just need to be listened to, honestly. Like, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, and we're finding within our I Quit Sugar community how common this is, not just for bowel cancer but for endometriosis, polycystic ovaries. Like women's issues keep getting brushed aside, but we're 50% of the population. The medical industry needs to catch up to all these things that we are finding in our bodies. I couldn't agree more. It's um, yeah, and just not been just not given band aid fixes all the time. Like just just do some I don't know investigation. Like it's like just yeah, it's so infuriating. It just makes my blood boil. It just makes me so mad. We need to learn to advocate for ourselves. So I think there's two points in your life you learn to advocate. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's too late. So I found that the times that you learn to advocate and become that voice is if you have elderly parents, because all of a sudden you have to start advocating for them. And if you have a child, because you have to advocate for them. Mm. At no time as a woman did I just mention yourself. 
I mm. think we need to start to learn to advocate. It's almost like, you know, once you leave home, and I'd like to say at 18, but let's be realistic, 25, 26, <laughs> you know, you're no longer having those conversations with your mum and your mum was the one advocating for you as you're yeah. growing up. So it's That's almost a good point. A skill that you don't, you don't take on. And I really feel like as parents now, we need to be starting to have these conversations and teach our children how to advocate for themselves in a medical sense and yeah. also how to seek answers. You know, Google, we're lucky now. Our kids can, and fair enough, I'm not advocating to go to Dr. Google all the time because <laughs> <laughs> you will come out with some really interesting diseases that I don't think yes. you have. <laughs> But it's having conversations like these. So, you know, you having conversations with your friends and saying, you know, this is what I'm going through. This is what I experienced. I know it's not right. I know my body. I know that this is not, you know, even though I'm pregnant and that's an abnormal condition for me for the majority of the time, it was not normal in my first pregnancy. I don't think this is normal now. And it's learning to have those conversations as women amongst each other so that we start talking about what's going on, about different conditions, understanding what is normal and what is not normal so that we can advocate for ourselves. And also people like you, Amanda, who speak about it and say, well, you know, it, I, for example, just even the nutrition side, I knew that that wasn't right. So I went and investigated for myself to find out what, I needed to do once I came out of surgery to look after my body. I didn't take it, I didn't take the doctor's word as the be all and end all. And I think a lot of us, especially um, when you go through school, as you know, you're taught to listen to authority a lot. So a doctor to me is an authority figure. And what they say, mm -hmm. they've gone through, you know, however many, many years of medical school. I think they're the, you know, the be all and end all. So, but not necessarily that person needs to be that. You have to find your person medically that's going to help you and get through stuff. Yeah, definitely. And listen to you. Mm -hmm. And listen to you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely listen. Yeah, because there's a lot that will um, just not, basically. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's, um, it's disheartening because you're right. They are the authority figure and they have done the training and you trust that they're going to give you the correct advice and that they are going to essentially have your best interests at heart, but they don't always, and that's the thing. Yeah, I think there does need to be a reform. And I'm not against the GPs in any sense. They have to be, you know, a, a thousand different things they have to know about. Mm -hmm. So I can see why it gets so easily swept under the rug. I am a little bit angry, though, when they say that they're um, a women's doctor and they aren't really on top of women's things so they don't really know about endometriosis they don't even you know they don't even realize <clears throat> for example women can get bowel cancer like all of that kind of stuff i think they've got to stop saying that they're specialists in certain areas that they're not yeah um 100 but, but i do think they need to open the gates so their problem is that they're becoming gatekeepers and they're also you know, they're putting stops to people that are actually looking for answers. And to your point, Amanda, they need to investigate. They need to go those extra yards, not just have that 15-minute consultation, investigate. So if you're saying, this is what I've got, do a colonoscopy, you know, take it that next step. Yeah. What, you know, really, what is it? Like it's no skin off their nose if you're 
if you're the one having to go and spend all your time going and have a colonoscopy, et cetera, right. to find out yeah. what's wrong. And yeah. I don't know, there seems to be some kind of um, issue with doctors, like, referring for a colonoscopy. I don't know why. I don't know what the problem is. Like, it's the gold standard. And there's so many mm. gut issues out there. It's not, you know, not just for bowel cancer, but, you know, for other um, gut issues. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't understand why there's such a, um, a hold back on it, like, especially colonoscopy. Like it's, mm. yeah, it's gold standard. So for anyone who is going through this condition or experiencing symptoms, what is your golden rule that you would give to our listeners? Trust your body. And when we've spoken about advocate for your health, advocate for you, um, you know, don't put yourself last. Like you said, we, you know, grandparents or, you know, um, elderly mm. parents and our kids, but we don't really push for ourselves and we need to push for ourselves and we need to be the role model that does push for ourselves, you know, we can't support those people if we're not here. So, mm. you know, we need to be present. We need to look after ourselves, listen to your body. Yeah, it's um, you're never too young for cancer. <laughs> That's the take-home message, basically. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks so it much. It was amazing to hear your story. And honestly, I, I have the world of admiration for someone like you who's coming out and talking about it in such a roar and, and especially while you're going through it as well. It's a, it's a tough time. It's I don't want anyone time. else to ever go through this. So if I can no. get any someone else to go to the doctor and ask for investigations, ask for a colonoscopy, mm. you know, then I've done my job. We are continuing to build awareness for Bowel Cancer Australia. In our next conversation, we are joined by Professor Mitchell Pattinson, a qualified nutritionist who has a Master in Health Science in Human Nutrition. She herself is a bowel cancer survivalist and works as a member of Bowel Cancer Australia's patient service team. Teresa, welcome to the podcast. I would just like to know how you first got involved in obviously Bowel Cancer Australia and, um, and your role at Bowel Cancer Australia. Okay, so my dad actually had bowel cancer and I was always interested in diet and nutrition and I started mm. studying it quite an early age. And then um, I actually got bowel cancer. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a nurse and she was working for Bowel Cancer Australia and she said at the time, wouldn't it be great if we had a nutritionist mm. who could come in and have a chat with people about how to manage their symptoms primarily as they're going through treatment, but also to talk to people about how to prevent bowel cancer as mm. best we can. We know that it's a multifactorial disease, so it's not just diet, but there's a large impact on diet. And it's approximately, according to the World Cancer Research Fund, about 55% is attributed to diet. So it's an important factor in prevention and survival and also how to help people as they're going through chemotherapy or radiotherapy or if they get a stoma fitted, which is an external bag where people defecate into and that can be very tricky. So you mentioned it's 55% of um, bowel cancer is um, diet related. What leads, what is that connection? So what kind of diet can lead to bowel cancer? So it, it's mostly, do you eat enough fruit and vegetables? Do you have enough fibre? Are you having a diet that is low 
in red meat and processed mm. meat and do you do you drink moderately let's say so those are the main factors now there is a little bit of evidence in there about high sugar consumption but i don't want people to run away with that one because it yeah. does have to be quite high and there are other factors involved with it and there's also some recent evidence to suggest that a diet that's high in calcium can help to prevent bowel cancer. So we've heard that bloating is one of the symptoms for bowel cancer, but is there any other symptoms that people can be aware of to make them think that they may have this condition? This is tricky because some people don't have any symptoms. I think the most important thing is look at family history. So in my case, my father had bowel cancer. I was diagnosed earlier than the 10 years that they suggest you get tested. How old were you when you were diagnosed? Yeah. I was 48. Right, so oh. very so, young. So yeah. it's young. So what, what normally happens is the, the general rule is if you're over 50, get tested. Mm. But unfortunately, we're finding that more people in let's say the um, you know 20 to 29 bracket are getting um kind of rectal cancer um approximately one in 10 um of the um 15,000 adults that are diagnosed are actually in that age bracket so it's quite a i think that's quite a lot um, but going back to the symptoms, I think um, unexplained fatigue. And again, how do you know? Because mm -hmm. we've had COVID, we've had, you know, all sorts of trauma over the past couple of years. Um, something that can be tested is an ongoing anemia. So mm -hmm. if that is happening, then talk to the GP. Uh, unexplained weight loss and fatigue again um, could be a number of things abdominal pain always worth checking it out uh, loose or constipated bowel motions for more than a three-month period i think is something that definitely needs to be followed up and if there's any blood or mucus in the bowel that's an absolute let's go straight to the gp let's get referred to a gastroenterologist and have it checked out. So we've heard more young people are becoming diagnosed with bowel cancer. Clara, you've had a couple of friends that have had this condition. Is that on the increase? Unfortunately. It is on so the increase. Since, uh, yeah, mm. since the 1900s, let's just say in the last 30 years, there's been a 266% increase over Whoa. that 30 years. Wow. In 10 to 24-year-olds. So why is it on the increase? Is it because of lifestyle factors like alcohol? Well, okay. Um, is it alcohol? Um, so it's genetic. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at that. Um, you have to look at lifestyle. So sitting all day is not great. Mm -hmm. uh, not exercising is not great. Um, the BMI, so body mass index, keeping that sort of, you know, under the 25 where possible, uh, diet and 
let's not underestimate how, you know, a stressful lifestyle can actually impact mm. all of that. Although there's not a great deal of evidence to that, but if you're stressed, of course, you're not going to look after your diet and you're not going to go and do exercise and you may not be sleeping as well. Um, so there's all of that. And, you know, my personal thought, it has no research behind it, is that, um, you know, if we have people that are generationally doing the gaming and sitting and not going out seeing the sunlight, mm -hmm. low vitamin D mm -hmm. levels and so on and so forth and not sleeping at appropriate hours, then all of those factors feed in. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know the statistics around how many? So, um, again, I mentioned earlier a friend of mine was diagnosed and she was diagnosed as a female and she was 35 at the time and she had two young children um, and her children were, you know, I'm talking one and a half, two and three and a half. And she is not the typical person or the typical candidate, right? So she she just kept on saying, nobody speaks to me like I'm not a 70-year-old man. I shouldn't have the same statistics as a 70-year-old man who has bowel cancer. And she just felt like such an atypical case. But now hearing the statistics, it's probably not so. Do you know how many women are diagnosed? She just... I and before her having I didn't think it was a woman's disease either um do you know how many women are diagnosed versus men actually I don't know the exact statistic but I thought that they were fairly similar mm. um if you were to ask me off the cuff I would say it would have to do with something to do with the hormones such as estrogen right um, I know that, you know, and particularly if people have a few, it, I didn't, don't know anything about your friend, but um, mm. even if you just have a couple of glasses of wine, that affects estrogen levels and mm. diet affects insulin levels and potentially those hormones are actually chemical messengers. But mm. I don't know the exact mix between male and female. So how much, so you talked about alcohol just then. How much alcohol mm. do you think um, an average Australian should be consuming before it becomes a lot less than they do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's probably, uh, that's very true. Um, but do you know how much, yeah, you know, so before it starts to become dangerous for stuff like bowel cancer and other health issues? It's a mixed, um, in research, it's it's kind of mixed. Um, the Australian government guidelines say that for a female, that should be one standard drink with a couple of nights off per week. Mm. And for a male, two standard drinks, probably because they don't have estrogen, or they do, but not as in such high levels, with a couple of nights off. And... I know for a fact, just looking at people around me, that that's just not what happens. I mean, it's most people common. have two. It's not mm -hmm. common. Um, two, if not more, most nights, and they're not a standard drink. So a standard drink is 150 mils of mm. wine. And when yeah. you look at um, a bottle of wine, as an example, that's seven and a half serves. Mm. Yeah. Whereas I know most people go, well, I only had two glasses and it's 
<laughs> half a bottle. Yeah. And I think that's um, this is something actually internally we've been speaking about quite a bit. I think there is a bit more of a rise of culture of we always have been speaking about binge drinking in the Australian culture mm. um, and stumping out binge drinking, so not going out, going, you know, so hard so quickly. But what we don't talk about is that casual drinking of sitting at home with a bottle of wine with you and your partner and you'll finish a bottle of wine. So you won't allow the bottle of wine to stay for the next night, for example. And exactly to your point, they feel like they're only having a couple of glasses and they're just finishing off a bottle of wine between them. But when you hear about the fact that that actually is seven standard drinks and you're mm. only supposed to have one serving of that a night, that's where I think there's a massive disconnect. Mm. I don't know if you're um, old enough to remember, but I certainly remember my mum and dad when they had mm. a glass of wine. It was a little teeny, it was a tiny little yeah. um, glass, you know. Yeah. Now we've got these buckets. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we need to go back to the old standard glasses to remind mm. ourselves of just exactly how much alcohol that is. Teresa, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. If you are interested to learn more about the topics we discussed in today's episode, we'll put all the links in our show notes. Also, join us on Thursdays. We deep dive further into bowel cancer with Dr. Penelope. See you guys then. Like this podcast? Please give us a five-star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.